What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from IndieHackers.com, and you're listening to the Indie Hackers Podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How did they get to where they are today? How do they make decisions, both at their companies and in their personal lives? And what exactly makes their businesses tick? And the goal here, as always, is so that the rest of us can learn from their examples and go on to build our own profitable internet businesses. Today, I am talking to Vlad Magdalene, the CEO of Webflow. Vlad, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. So can you tell us a little bit about what Webflow is and also how big the company is, how well it's Mm -hmm. doing? Because I think you've been able to build something pretty remarkable. Uh, Thanks. Yeah. Webflow is a kind of a new category. We call it a visual software development platform. Uh, It's a way to build software. You can think of that as like websites and applications visually without writing code. Uh, We started off as a website builder, almost like a web design and web publishing platform, uh, but are graduating more and more into more complicated types of software. We're at 155 people as of this morning, um, which has been growing gradually over the last seven years. You know, started with just my brother and I, but doubling our customer base pretty much every year, have over close to 70,000 customers. Crazy. Uh, And, you know, people are building some awesome things on it, have a great team all over the world, actually. We're about 70% remote across 20 countries, 30 plus different states. Um, So been having fun doing that. I I think I remember reading like an article from yours from a year and a half ago where you were already making, I think, $10 million a year in revenue, projecting to more than double that. Is there a point at which you look, at yourself in the mirror and you're like, I've made it, you know, I've done it. Uh, I mean, that definitely hasn't happened yet. And <laughs> I uh, absolutely don't look at revenue uh, as that, that metric. It's sort of like, you know, a nice like lagging indicator. Mm-hmm. Um, but honestly, that's just helpful in helping us reach our full mission, uh, which is to empower a lot more people to build software. Right now it's a tiny percentage of the world that's able to build software, like people who know how to code. So it feels like we're maybe 5% there. Uh, you know, people are just starting to see the potential of this. So it definitely doesn't feel like we've made it yet. Although I could say maybe seven years ago when we were first starting out, kind of felt at certain points that we made it, you know, just by like surviving, Yeah. <laughs> you know, being able to like be ramen profitable and, uh, you know, not worrying about running out of money. That sort of felt like uh, a milestone in making it. But right now it feels like we still have a lot more to do. Well, we've got a lot to talk about. I want to talk about what you sort of alluded to, which is kind of the no code movement and the fact that right now we live in a world where primarily the people creating things online are developers, but we're moving towards a world where lots more people who aren't developers are going to be building interactive, cool websites and applications. I want to talk a little bit about fundraising Mm -hmm. because on this show, I don't exactly feature that many businesses who've raised a ton of money. And I've been kind of accused by some of being kind of a VC basher. Uh-huh. Uh, but now I've got you on the Me podcast. Me too, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've got an interesting, an interesting perspective because you hit profitability before raising money. Mm-hmm. And you raised, uh, I think you guys have raised like $75 million or something, an insane amount. Um, and so it'll be cool to get your perspective on whether or not the things said on the show about venture capitalists are true. But first, I kind of want to start by talking about ideas and choosing what to work on. Mm-hmm. Because I've noticed this pattern with lots of companies that I've spoken to that although intuitively it kind of seems like to start a successful business, you need to invent something that's brand new, you need to solve some sort of unsolved problem. A lot of the most successful companies that I've talked to solve kind of a boring, straightforward problem that's been around forever. Webflow is enabling people to create websites and applications. People have been doing that for ages. Mm-hmm. Our mutual friend, Lentai, she has yeah. a company called Key Values. She helps Developers find jobs at software companies. People yeah. have been doing that before. Right. I just talked to John O'Nolan. He's helping bloggers mm-hmm. publish content online. People have been doing that before. 
But I think there's something to uh, solving one of these perennial problems that that people really find a need to solve, and then bringing kind of a more creative solution than what exists already in the market. So uh, why don't we start at the beginning? How did you come up with the idea for Webflow, and why weren't you dissuaded by the fact that people were already building websites? Yeah, that's a good question. By the way, it's a small little aside, Lynn that you mentioned, uh, she built her uh, business key values on Webflow. There we uh, go. So it sort of helped her bootstrap uh, her company, which is always makes me happy in seeing success cases like that. But the original idea was, uh, you know, a, a lot of people had the same idea around like, how do we make making websites easier? Just like a lot of people thought search was a solved problem in you know 1990 in the 90s, uh, and then Google sort of came along and did it slightly better. I think we're in the same boat where we just saw this because I was a web developer. I was working with a lot of designers, taking like Photoshop files, turning them into like these CMSs. It just kept like repeating over and over. And at some point, I was doing this so much uh, that it just became more and more obvious that uh, it has to there has to be a better way. But I actually, won't claim credit that I that I it, it was like some magical insight because. That, that I had, it was a specific video that I saw that I think every maker and every creator should see called Inventing on Principle by Brett Victor. Uh, seeing that, uh, that talk, it's like a maybe 50 minute talk uh, around like creating games and doing animation and sort of like this uh, broader concept of uh, direct manipulation. But more importantly, the, the principle behind why you do the work you do, like what drives you and seeing that video and being sort of a designer and a 3D animator and a developer all at once, it just sparked like that that idea of like, holy crap, uh, the kinds of tools that we can have like in animation land, the kind of tools we already have for like game design and level design, the kind of tools we have uh, in like digital publishing, uh, all those things can be like married together to like front end and back end develop- development and just make it a much more human type of interface. And that's when it was like, boom, this has to be a product and a thing. But I didn't even think that there was like a market, huge market opportunity. It was more like, how do I solve this problem for myself and for my brother who I you know, partnered with to build websites for clients? Uh, so it's sort of like, how do I make our life easier? Not how do we make like billions of dollars or whatever, or like create this you know, world-changing product or anything. It was much more meager ambitions at that point. So what was your plan if you were to build this tool and make your life easier? Would you just continue doing agency work yeah it was you... just it was just us two we were working mostly with businesses in uh in sacramento like mostly dentists sometimes orthodontists like started with my dad's boss who was a dentist and you know kind of uh went out from there and we just thought you know i could make more money for my family i had kids at the time already um i could just make a better living put a little bit more money away for college or whatever and just be more efficient with with creating these websites um so i was just only thinking of it as as that like how do we how do we save ourselves a little bit of time. At what point did you start thinking that this could be something that you could turn into a fully-fledged business that other people would want to use and wouldn't just be yeah. for you and your brother? I think that was, that was more gradual, just seeing a lot of the success cases around that time. This was uh, late 2011, early 2012, where you know, more and more businesses like Weebly, like you know, Squarespace, like WordPress, et cetera, started becoming uh, pretty prominent and started to see that as like, hey, maybe there's like a product opportunity here, not just like a tool that we create for ourselves. And at some point, somebody um, encouraged us to apply to YC and that's uh, to Y Combinator. And that like the questions that they ask there led us to think more around sort of like the opportunity because they ask, you know, what are you inventing? What are you what are you creating that doesn't exist? What problem does it solve? Uh, and then later on in the application, it's like, how are you going to make money? And that's some of the earliest times where we're like, oh, you have to think about how this is going to be productized 
franchise and what kind of value it brings to people and to businesses. Uh, and that led us to more, uh, think, you know, more strategically around like, is there a business here, et cetera. Right. Uh, but up in the t- even then, during that process, the first time we applied, we thought it was just going to be us sort of, uh, you know, we didn't know around uh, about how the need to to scale, you know, add more people as you build a complex product. We just thought that we could build everything ourselves. Uh, we were a little bit naive in that sense. But, you know, it's sort of like gradually started becoming more clear that, you know, we we're going to have to turn this into a more, uh, into a bigger company in order to reach... Th- even deliver the initial product that we wanted. So I want to dwell on this point for a little bit where you looked out in the ecosystem and you saw there was Weebly, there was mm-hmm. Wix, there's Squarespace, and these are all basically website building yep. tools. So if you don't know how to code, you can use one of those to create a website. I think the vast majority of people, if they look out mm-hmm. and see a bunch of other companies doing a great job at something, they think, oh, I'm too late. Mm-hmm. You know, If only we had done this a little bit earlier, we're too late, yep. these companies are huge, there's no reason for our thing to exist. Why didn't you think that? I actually did think that. And uh, believe it or not, I started Webflow three different times before 2012, uh, starting all the way back in 2005. And at different times, I saw these, you know, products come out and I got discouraged. I was like, okay, so Weebly got into, you know, these uh, kind of these accelerators and they raised money from Sequoia and all this stuff and sort of like game over for me. I think the key insight in 2012 when I saw this this video from Brett Victor was um, one very specific new technology that just came around into browsers called responsive design that none of these tools had. And that's the that's the part that I was doing a lot. Like, you know, my brother would do the Photoshop design of a new uh, website and I would translate uh, into code with like HTML and CSS, but mostly in CSS, there's something called breakpoints that none of these other template based website builders even had. And Adobe, Adobe didn't really have a product that let you do sort of uh, cross um, uh, breakpoint stuff where you would design one thing for desktop and kind of go down to tablet, go down to mobile because all that stuff was relatively new. So that was the, you know, that was our little hedge into to the into the market to say like hey nothing exists like this to do actual responsive design where you have one design that automatically kind of flows down to the next version and you can make some like design tweaks etc all other services like forced you to either like have one design for all environments and you just sort of kind of have to zoom out you know or write custom code and we wanted to create something that specifically solved that problem so we were kind of lucky in that sense uh and that those companies were like big enough at that point that they couldn't move quickly yeah to add something like that uh and nobody else had sort of everyone else was kind of discouraged in that you know uh website builders are kind of a solved problem and they added uh a, a sort of thing that we naively still believed that it was a huge opportunity uh but a lot of people in 2012 especially investors, especially other uh, startup founders, were thinking about mobile. Like anybody we talked to about web at the time were like, what are you doing? Like this this whole, you know, medium is dying. Everyone's, you know, working on apps and uh, that's the next big opportunity. So it was a combination of kind of like having that small little feature set that we could be unique in. And most of the people not really paying attention to the space and thinking that it is a solved problem. And for us, honestly, it just uh, it seemed like a really fun thing to work on. So yeah, it's crazy how some of these bigger problems that seem solved will never truly be solved yeah. because the world keeps changing. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, well, now there's responsive design, now there's mobile, mm-hmm. you need better website building tools. Right, right. It's not something that ever can be solved. And I think right. it's one of the reasons why there's always uh, an entry point if you're solving mm-hmm. one of these previously solved problems, one of these boring, straightforward right. problems. Another thing that, that comes to mind is just competition. Because mm-hmm. even though you might have an edge on the features, yeah. how do you find customers? How do you compete where you have all these other companies basically... Yeah 
buying all the, all the ad space right. and they have all the word of mouth and they have all the attention. Yeah. How did you find your very first users for Webflow? For us, it was a combination of, um, so we, I think this was a saving thing for us. We would be dead right now if it, uh, if this didn't happen. We created a small little prototype, like, uh, Sergi and I, uh, my brother, we, First wanted, so we started the company in September, uh, 2012, and we had like three months of runway. We essentially, you know, talked to my wife and uh, we took all of our savings, even borrowed some against credit cards to say like, okay, we're going to like really live with that income for three, uh, for three months. And then we're mean, in the meantime, we're making a Kickstarter video and that's going to get us a bunch of money. Like we're targeting 300K or something. And then Sergi and I would be able to live on that runway for, you know, a, a year or two and then, you know, build the product, get to revenue, et cetera. And your wife was okay with that plan? Uh, with the three months. Um, <laughs> then when three months rolled around and we we're nowhere close and Kickstarter shut us down because they don't support SaaS products and we were already like, we had invested like 20K into making this oh, video. No. You know, that was our, our bad for not reading the terms of service, which by the way, read the terms of service <laughs> before you bank your uh, company's future on, um, you know, a platform or something like that. And, you know, ran out of money then had to like start borrowing or whatever and three months later my daughter needed to have surgery so we were like selling our car and we're planning already to move back to Sacramento and get my old job back and we said okay we have only one more month and my brother also wanted to move back to San Diego because you know he was out of money etc so we said we're just gonna put together a rough prototype and it's not even going to be a working product; it's just an idea for what we want to build. Uh, we put together this like five month, uh, not five month, five week plan of like the the bare bones of what we need to ship. And we shipped that, and we put it up on Product Hunt. It was like a read only thing; you can still see it. It's uh, playground.webflow.com, and that took off like gangbusters. It just went, you know, it went viral. Um, it was the number one thing on, on not Product Hunt, sorry, Hacker News. Uh, Product Hunt didn't exist yet. So on Hacker News, which was like full of developers, and yeah. here we're like showing this design tool that was actually an abstraction over HTML and CSS, which I think is why it resonated so much because we had this sort of side-by-side mode mm-hmm. where you can make a change with like visual UI tools and it would show exactly what code is changing in the CSS. And I think that really resonated with a lot of developers thinking like, oh, this is kind of like dev tools. Uh, but a little more sophisticated. And that got really popular and that gave us a bunch of people on a waiting list. Uh, I think it was close to 25,000 people Crazy. over just a week. And then there was sort of, uh, you know, people sharing it and saying uh, um, a lot of good things about it, a lot of bad things about it too, a lot of like discouraging of things. It's hacker news, of course. Yeah, especially like thought leaders in like CSS space, like you can never, you know, you can never replace CSS, that kind of thing. Uh, but that that created a, a pretty large uh, list of people that w- when we ended up launching an actual working product, a year later, that was how long it took us to actually build it out. Then, you know, we had a list to try to convert. Um, and, you know, we had all these ambitions around, okay, you know, 30,000 people, even if we convert, you know, 5% or whatever, we're going to have a, uh, a really good business. Uh, but the product was so limited at the time. I think we converted like, a hundred people <laughs> and it was really discouraging. And, you know, then that started going up like slow, very slowly. Um, and, and that's actually honestly one of the reasons why, uh, why we decided to, um, take an investment at that point. Cause it was just survival mode. Uh, if right. we, if we didn't do that, like we literally didn't have any other options, uh, to, to finance, like being able to invest in creating the, the product cause the product couldn't sell itself yet. Yeah. 
seems like you were floating from from lifeline to lifeline from at that time yes yeah, yeah. yeah how did it feel to see your prototype project blow up on hacker news and get all these subscribers after you'd been taking out credit cards and really not succeeding to build what you tried for five that or six was, months you know when when the decision was we we're already looking for homes back in sacramento and you know my my wife was really discouraged you know my kids uh, they were uh, three and one at the time, you know, we already made plans to move out thinking that there's no way that this is going to be, you know, like we just wanted to show the world. And what happened on Hacker News was way beyond our wildest expectations. That was, I don't know, it was like the biggest roller coaster of being discouraged to seeing, holy cow, like this is really, really resonating. Uh, and for once, like Hacker News, if you go back through that thread, like people were saying like really positive things. I don't know what was on people's minds then, but it was like an un- uncharacteristic day for Hacker News to be like really supportive uh, for what we're building, especially with something that potentially has like this air of replacing programmers potentially, mm-hmm. uh, even though that's not what, uh, you know, no code does. It was a... We were very lucky to that that it really took off that day. How did you support yourself for the next year when you're building this prototype and you're actually trying to capitalize on this thing that had taken off on Hacker News? I can show you my credit card statements. It was a lot of those. Thankfully, I had the privilege of having good credit, so I can keep borrowing. Uh, but you know, I had a lot of credit cards that had those like you know two percent. You sign yourself a check, yeah, type of things, um, and. It was that for a while. And then we got into IC. There was a small investment there. So we were able to start paying ourselves minimum wage. And then only about six months later, when we were uh, able to raise a seed round, did we start to like have any sort of salaries where you could even like break even uh, on a personal level and pay for like rent and stuff. Uh, So that was, you know, I think the, the promise of like, hey, it's working. Like people are signing up. People are excited about this. People are talking about this on our forum or on Twitter. That gave enough of like blind optimism that this was going to work that I could kind of uh, keep everybody excited that that something, uh, you know, this thing is going to come through. So you had almost the exact story and path that I tell founders not to go down. <laughs> oh, yeah. This, I, would, I would absolutely not advise anyone to do this. It's, it's like a paradoxical thing. It, you know, we wouldn't be here if I hadn't done that. But I, I would not recommend that to a friend, to be honest. Like the roller coaster and the financial decisions we had to make were not prudent ones. No, but um, I think on the flip side, there's something about being under that kind of pressure of knowing you only have a month left, of knowing yeah. that you're running out of money that I think sometimes forces a certain level of creativity or a certain yep. level of action. Yeah. You decided yeah. to build that prototype. And maybe if you had had two years of runway, you never would have yeah. done that. You would have built something much bigger, never really proved yeah, the concept. Yeah, it was, it was definitely all or nothing. Like it was, uh, and I definitely don't recommend this now. Like it was a season that we had to go through of survival mode. Right now I would never recommend, you know, especially a growing company to work those kinds of hours and do that kind of, uh, and, and thankfully it was like super enjoyable because we got into flow state, right? Like you, we were building like this beautiful thing that we really wanted uh, the world to see and to, to experience. Uh, and it was, you know, one of the best years of my life in terms of like creativity and, uh, but also one of the worst years of my life in terms of like stability and uncertainty and risk and et cetera. Um, so, but you know, uh, thankfully I think I, I was privileged enough that I knew that if everything fell through, sure, I would be, you know, still in debt or whatever, but at least I can go get a job uh, yeah. back at my previous company because my, my boss was sort of like hinting, my old boss was kind of hinting like, hey, it'd be nice to have you back kind of thing. Uh, not not nearly anyone has that, um, not nearly everyone has that kind of privilege. So when you joined YC, I think they gave you $80,000 or something to fund your company, which mm-hmm. is enough for 
um, you and your brother to basically pay yourselves a salary for a year, yeah. a year and a half, if you're living super frugally. Yeah, and you had a family at the time, so probably not. Yeah, at that long. at that point, there was three. So we had another co-founder join, uh, Bryant. He joined a few months after we started, before we got into YC, and it was definitely not like YC was like you have to pay yourselves a minimum wage. Uh, so whatever that was, like twelve fifty an hour at that point, that was not at all sustainable. So until we were able to raise our seed round, maybe six months later, uh, it was sort of like the that investment was more for like if we have to pay for AWS or if mm-hmm. we have to like hire a developer, maybe. Uh, you know, we weren't thinking of that as like okay, how do we divvy up eighty grand right. into you know three founders' pockets or whatever. It was more it, we were still operating in that like really lean. Everybody individually figures out how to cover their personal expenses, kind of waiting for for more income to come in through through revenue and things like that. How did you decide that the path forward would be to raise more and more money? And this is something I want to talk to you about because yep. you just have such a different perspective than others I've had on the podcast. I think for most people, the caution around raising money is the cost to your, your potential freedom. You might yep. lock yourself in a path where mm-hmm. essentially you're answering to investors. Right, right. Uh, your company, even if it would be successful at a smaller size, now mm-hmm. has to go way further and do way more Mm -hmm. in order to succeed. Were you weighing those questions when you decided to raise your seed round? And how did you decide to make that decision rather than bootstrapping? Absolutely. So uh, for us, we didn't have a choice. There was no bootstrapping option. Uh, You know, we... We were maybe 20% of the way through building the product, right? We just needed more time. The other, only other option for all of us to, was to go back to work and sort of moonlight again uh, in building the product. But I think that would have taken just the market opportunity at the time. Somebody else would have, there was already a company called Easel that had, um, launched a preview uh and they were already in yc mm-hmm. that we we're thinking you know if they if they really operate really well um they ended up being uh, sold to github and it became like adam the editor uh that same same team was working on it but it sort of felt like you know we either have to raise a seed round to be able to sustain just sustain operations like literally pay rent not even for the company uh for our ourselves individually otherwise we just have to shut the company down um so it didn't feel like a conscious choice at that point it was like do you want to keep surviving or do you not like do we want to keep building and that seemed like the only avenue and thankfully like the seed environment at that time was like you know you don't have to give up any control people kind of taking a flyer on you uh there's no you know investors don't meddle in in operations there's no or board seats that investors it, are getting absolutely exactly and then thankfully this is where usually it gets it gets tough for startups is where they they raise that and then they don't get to profitability and all of their options go out the window except to raise more and that's when like you get more dilution more control uh that that starts to seep out uh, away from founders and from the company into you know people that might not be aligned to your mission mm-hmm. uh, and you're sort of doing that out of desperation rather than uh like strategically so for us what we did thankfully we had amazing uh, early seed investors because nobody wanted to invest in web tools at the time uh, except people who really believed in you as a person and wanted to support you as a person so it was like uh, f- philosophically aligned uh you know people who just wanted to support like the scrappy and passionate team they didn't have like you know outside the expectations for this becoming like a rocket ship or whatever right. uh, in fact one of uh, one of our investors early on this um, guy named ron from rainfall ventures we would do like breakfasts and walks around san francisco and he'd be like why don't you be more like the patagonia founder who takes off six months a year to get inspired <laughs> um which is not something you expect to hear from investors because no, right? he's all. thinking like super long term and, you know, talking about culture and how do you build, uh, you know, teams that are kind and not things you expect from investors. And then we got to, uh, thankfully got to profitability or to break even. And at that point, you're, 
the the sky's the limit, right? Because you're in control of your own destiny. You don't have to, you're what I call, uh, what PG calls uh, Paul Graham, who's the founder of uh, Y Combinator, default alive, uh, which means that if you don't bring in outside capital, you're still going to survive. You might grow right. slower, et cetera, but you're like, you're in control of your own destiny. The other more common option is you're default dead, right? If that next like series A or series B or series C doesn't come through, you have to go out and raise again and, you know, have more people to be accountable to, et cetera. Um, so we were operating like that for five years. And the the calculation that we made recently, like around the beginning of this year, with raising this very large Series A, was thinking through like the strategic opportunity of what we wanted to do. And honestly came down to finding another person that was like so philosophically aligned with like what we want to build long term and just wants to help us do that much faster. Uh, so, and, and we wanted to do that much faster. Like we, we knew that we wanted to go from well beyond websites to web applications because we saw what kinds of things people were building on Webflow. Like people were literally tens of thousands of people making a living, right? Mm. So we had like this fire uh, in our bellies of like, look, our product is helping people make a living. Like people are begging us for more functionality because they, you know, they are putting food on the table. They're buying houses. They're like creating jobs uh, based because our product is enabling them to do that. It feels, uh, you know, suboptimal for us to like just take our time and and you know just be like treat our comfort uh, as you know like we're just going to keep our team the same size it is mm-hmm. and keep growing like very slowly. Like we just had this uh, this drive to like how do we get this into a lot more hands? How do we get not one out of 400 people to build software? How do we get like 40 out of 400 people, if not 200 out of 400 people uh, building software? Um, so it was like finding somebody, and we didn't even go out looking, right? It was it was uh, hundreds of uh, conversations and breakfasts and relationships that sort of develop uh, with, with potential investors over the years because like people hear things like, you know, we're making uh, a lot in revenue and mm-hmm. we're profitable, et cetera, and that sort of attracts investor conversations. And like, I'll, I'll tell you this, the vast majority of them were exactly what you hear about investors, right? How do we make more money? How do we like turn uh, this business into something that is, you know, like going enterprise and like gets into, makes these massive deals, et cetera. Like thinking through the classical model of like, you know, what, what I uh, call like just build shareholder value. Right? right. And it wasn't until we met Arun from Excel that was like, forget about all that. Like that stuff is interesting in that, you know, a company can do that right now is like double down on what's already working. But look at this, like seeing the opportunity of like really shifting the landscape of uh, software development and how do we get it into as many hands as possible, even if it means growing revenue slower, even if it means um, like having to forego some of the classical like VC type tactics of like growth at all costs. Right. And that's that's what it became for us. Like if finding a partner that like really cares about us as people like we're friends, we hang out with families and kids. Uh, you know, the, they're like uh, the way I think about it is, you know, we knew we wanted to uh, climb this mountain, right? We've only done so much in like climbing mountains before. We kind of like know about it uh, conceptually. We know we want to climb it, and here's somebody that's like a Sherpa that's done it a hundred times before and is able to give us like gear and resources to do that faster and better and like more safely. And, and for us, it was like that, that feeling of a true partnership. And we were lucky to be in a position where, you know, we didn't have to give up any control. We didn't like, it's a true partnership. It's not like somebody that we, you know, report to or like a new boss or whatever. It's like adding a new co-founder. It's adding somebody who like really believes in the mission and has something to bring to the table. They're literally like, in our Slack, like interviewing people, solving problems, like diving into, you know, specific uh, kind of challenges on the team, like dreaming big about like what we can do together. It's like, it just feels, 
like a collaboration rather than somebody to fear or somebody to, um, and the, the, the cool thing about Excel is that they don't have like these, you know, short term, short term time horizons. Cause the, the funds that they work with that are downstream are like the California pension fund, the Canadian pension fund, like they have hundred year time horizons. They're looking for the global maxima, uh, just like what we're trying to optimize for. We're trying to like make this new way of, of for people to create software. The faster we get to that, the more, of a dent we can make in the universe. And that's what like really uh, what it came down to because we weren't able to move that fast with the resources that we had. Like we weren't growing revenue fast enough to be able to say, okay, we're going to do an event like No Code Conf uh, mm-hmm. and like really kick off the industry and inspire a lot more people. Like we just didn't have that money to invest. And it was sort of like a, a question between, okay, do we wait two years until we're in that position or make more of a spark now uh, and try to do a lot more now? And and so far that that calculation has been like, an amazing return. And we still stay true to our values. We still stay true to like the, the way that the company operates. We have these things called core behaviors that uh, in our mission and our vision that truly drives the company. It's not things like a revenue number. It's not things like, you know, how do we get into, you know, every, every company or like sell to every company in the world or whatever. It's how do we make our, our mission happen? How do we empower more people to like create software and build companies, create services, make a living, et cetera. And it just, that that avenue helped us do that faster. So it sounds like there's really three big things that have made your experience with fundraising really positive. The first one is just working with the right investors, people yep. who are actually aligned for what you want to do and are just sort of, you know, they'll invest in any company so long as it increases yeah. shareholder value. Yeah. And those those investors are very few and far between. So I understand when people have a negative view of investors because I have a negative view of the vast majority of investors. Yeah. And so kind of the second point was that you got to this default alive state where you were making enough money mm-hmm. to be break even, which meant that you actually had the the power and the time to mm-hmm. mine these yep. good investors. Yep. So you weren't rushed into having exactly. to accept any deal you could take. Exactly. I think the third thing that's pretty interesting is kind of your values as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, you are someone who, and you said it several times uh, so far in this conversation, that you know the revenue number is not what excites you. It's more mm-hmm. so the opportunity to change the way yep. that people are creating things online. And I think that's not a common trait. I think for the vast majority of people, if you say, hey, would you rather have $20 million? Or would you rather change the way that people build websites? They'll be like, mm-hmm. $20 million. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, where does that come from inside of you? And have you always, always prioritized things that way? I haven't thought a ton about that, but I think a lot of it has to do with just my life experience. Like I came from, I grew up in Russia, like super poor. We were, you know, on this sort of our own farm with no electricity and, uh, you know, we had a well and an outhouse and that kind of thing. And we lived in a country where, uh, my, my family's religion was persecuted against. So my parents didn't have a, you know, we kind of had to be, to be isolated under the radar, you know, trying to make ends meet my, you know, my grandparents and their grandparents were also persecuted, went through like multiple wars. And, uh, so having that, like that chance to come to America, like by honestly, by the goodness of people, like there was a, you know, a law that, that allowed refugees to enter the country, especially at a time when there was like anti-Russian sentiment, there was a, you know, enough people in Congress and like with the leadership was able to have a, totally different view on immigration and um, like amnesty uh, than what's currently happening, unfortunately. Uh, And seeing that somebody was able to, you know, like give my family the, you know, the chance at a better life. I already have a much better life than I would have uh, been having back there. So it almost seems like, you know, I want to help 
as many people as possible provide that. And like money doesn't seem like a, sure, it might be an avenue to, to do that, but helping other people make a living seems a lot more powerful, especially if we can do that through our product. And it, it always, um, I think when, when I've had experiences that felt very morally wrong to me at, at other companies, it, it just made me want to create a kind of company where, you know, other people don't have to make that, that, uh, kind of trade off of, you know, well, we're kind of doing everything in the service of kind of capitalism or mm-hmm. shareholder value or whatever. That just doesn't feel inspiring, right? It, it just doesn't feel like sure it could be an outcome or a reward, but people, what people really want is a strong sense of purpose. Like, why are you doing the work that you're doing? And that's the uh, inventing in principle video that I mentioned that really inspired me towards that. It's not the what that you do, but the why. And people want a lot more autonomy. People want a lot more ownership. People want to master uh, like crafts that they practice to give meaning and purpose to their life. And all those things feel so much better. Like it just feels better to operate in an environment that's values driven. Uh, you know, some of our core behaviors are things like practice extraordinary kindness, uh, be radically candid, dream big, um, lead by serving others. Like our entire leadership model is not direct, you know, I know everything and here's like, don't go do this, do my vision. It's sort of like serve, uh, like hire really awesome people and serve them in, in meeting their objectives and, and bringing like, the, you know, their new ideas, uh, to, to our product and to our team and to processes, et cetera. Um, so much so that we baked it into our, the mission of the company. A lot of times like companies will have missions where, you know, it's like, Make collaborate or whatever Google's is uh, organize world information. Yeah, exactly. Something. And we have one like that that we defined very early on, which is to empower people to build software without code. Right. That's like the the big long term vision, etc. But we created one that's side by side and equally as important, if not more so, which is to create the kind of company where each individual team member can live an impactful and fulfilling life, whatever that means to them. And that's like a much higher uh, thing to shoot for. It's much harder than like here's a product that you want to build. Right. Right. Uh, and that creates sort of like this glue and this foundation of wanting to, uh, like also staying accountable to doing the right thing. And, you know, diff- people have different definitions of what the right thing is a lot of times, but most times you just know when something is like you're doing it because you just want to make more money versus, uh, because you want to do the right thing by people. And to me, that's just the kind of company I want to work at. And, um, whether I'm the CEO or not, it's just, uh, that's the thing that, that I see sustaining the company over decades rather than, you know, chasing a, a revenue number or like a market share number or whatever. That's just, I don't know, for whatever reason, that's not inspiring to me. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. And I think a lot of first time founders don't think about this when they're building their first company, but you're not just creating something for customers and you're not just creating something for yourself, but you're probably going to create something that has employees yeah. and it's going to be its own community. It's almost mm-hmm. like its own country Absolutely. and you're the head of state and you mm-hmm. get to determine what kind of country it's going to be. Is it yeah. going to be a brutal dictatorship? Is <laughs> yeah. it going to be something where your employees can grow and flourish? Yeah. And so putting a lot of thought into that is crucial. But also the other side of the equation, you know, how do you sustain all these people's livelihoods? Mm-hmm. How do you generate enough revenue right. to actually make your company work and grow? And you know, that basically means making your customers happy and yeah. building something yeah. that works. What goes into building a company like Webflow that somebody from the outside looking in, who's never built any uh, any tool like this, mm-hmm. might not appreciate. How do you grow and build a successful product? Honestly, it's sort of a chicken and egg, right? You could say that you need to serve customers really well for them to give us revenue so that we can, you know, uh, uh, treat employees better. 
mm-hmm. et cetera. But you could also argue that you're not going to build a good product if you're not taking uh, great care of your team. So like which comes first, right? Right. Uh, I tend to believe that it's actually like the team comes first. The the team that we have, you know, we can tackle other problems uh, and we could probably tackle them equally well. We happen to be like really excited about this vision and mission. I think what wasn't obvious to me from the very beginning is that I wasn't thinking about team and structure and like the the values and core behaviors of the company um, as like a system, right? Or as a, a even a, a thing to be like really thoughtful around at all times I was more thinking about like architecture and features and like right. code base and are we writing enough tests or whatever that stuff uh, kind of uh, figures itself out but it's much 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 harder to build a uh, an organism of people uh, that are rowing in the same direction and have a common mission and you know uh, like treating each other really well and collaborating well have a, a common sense of purpose much harder than than creating you know a set of servers that are following <laughs> uh, you know even even as hard as software development is so I would I would encourage founders and uh, you know people who are building companies to start on that much earlier. Uh, even if you're running a very small independent uh, company, even a company of one, uh, the way that you treat you like your vendors or people that your subcontractors that you're collaborating with, all that stuff has like compounding effects by by treating relationships as people first rather than like outcomes first or like mm-hmm. revenue first or you know what can this do for me uh, in in a financial sense. I think over time. Maybe I'm too much of an optimist, but I think that uh, that reaps much uh, bigger rewards over time, both like emotionally and psychologically, but also, um, you know, in a monetary sense. Uh, um, over time, I think it just pays dividends to treat people as people. <laughs> At what point did you have that transition? Because you said you weren't necessarily thinking that way right up front. Webflow's now, I believe you said 155 people. Yeah. At what point did you did you switch over and think, you know, this is the real challenge? Yeah, so it wasn't it wasn't a uh, you know snap of the fingers type of transition, but I'd say it took place around um, like when I realized that I really have to shift uh, my mindset from like thinking about the code as the product to the company as the main uh, thing that I'm kind of designing mm-hmm. was probably around forty people or so uh, when it started emerging that. You know, it was much easier for me as a developer and as a designer to focus on code problems. Like that's where I could add value. And right? That's your natural skill sets. Exactly. But but seeing things like start to crack, like two people not getting along, or it's hard to give somebody feedback, or you see somebody struggling, but you you're you're afraid to give them, uh, you know, uh, tougher expectations or like more clear expectations, or you saw somebody say something that is, you know, potentially harmful for somebody else and you're just afraid to lean into that. You'd rather go into your code base where you can put on headphones and like solve a problem <laughs> and like have other people celebrate that. It took seeing more and more of those things manifesting and and people thankfully being kind enough to like flag those to me and, and be brave enough to come to me with like radical feedback of like, hey, this is what's actually happening. Like people are going to leave if this isn't fixed or mm-hmm. uh, this is going to start falling apart or, you know, we have um, somebody that's like steamrolling over other people just because they've been there longer, et cetera. And that's when I really realized that it I have to step away from the thing that I really associated my self-worth with was like this this code base, like yeah. the thing that I created from scratch and and you know understood uh, better than uh, anybody else at the company and started to like disassociate from that. And I always thought that that was going to be a super painful thing and that you know I would always try to come back to writing code in, in one way or another. But surprisingly like 3 years later, like I haven't written a line of code in like the last 2 years uh in in the Webflow code base um 
And I've actually gotten a lot more personal satisfaction and fulfillment from seeing how the team has developed, like the uh, the amount of autonomy the team has and what they were able to build. Uh, so it was a surprising thing that I was really fearful of. Uh, but like looking back, I'm really thankful that I was able to go through that transition. Is there something you can do to make that switch more palatable, to make it more enjoyable? Because I know a lot of founders mm-hmm. who are technical, who are developers yeah. or designers, and they really love working on their product, and they have kind of the same fear. You know, I don't yeah. know if I'm going to like transitioning to more of a leadership, managerial yeah. role, and, and having other people do the thing that I love to do. Yeah, you. Don't, by the way, you don't have to. Uh, I think it would be a shame to completely step out of the thing that you love doing. I'm still deeply involved in sort of the product uh, vision and direction, and uh, a lot of like the high level decisions around that. That's what I found was that like that was the most satisfying thing for me. Not necessarily, you know, like you know, push this pull request, right? And then like our customers have a new feature, but more the like this is my vision for what the product is and and how it um, will you know solve these big problems for our customers, etc. So that for me, like getting rid of that would be really painful, I think. And I think it would be a disservice to the company. So I think like creators, especially developers, I would just explore like leadership becomes its own challenge and reward. Uh, so, and it, and it feels like you're developing yourself as like a code base uh, because as you get stronger in like having tougher conversations, you get stronger in like motivating people and inspiring people uh, that starts to have its own like endorphin type of uh, uh, kind of rewards. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, so you'd be surprised how much uh, satisfaction there are, are in those, even though emotionally it is, you know, you do carry a lot more. Uh, it is a more, a more um, kind of tough thing that you can't just turn off like the way, the way that you can, turn off like thinking about a feature or whatever I would say like explore like start adding especially as you grow even if you're working independently it doesn't really matter if you're kind of 150 people or 15 people you're going to have to focus on people leadership you're going to have to focus on like motivating your team inspiring your team you're going to have to focus on uh, how do you get uh, a group of people to dream in the same direction and execute in the same direction uh, so that's inevitable it's it's the question of like not if but when uh, so it's better to start like leaning into that earlier and you'd be surprised how much um, uh, satisfaction you can probably develop there but it's still totally uh, reasonable to uh, hold on to like areas that give you energy and that you're you're really um, like passionate about and I would never let go of that stuff such a good point that as you get better at doing this you're going to enjoy it more because that's true for so many other things yeah. like I've taught a few people how to code I taught Len how to code mm-hmm. I taught my brother how to code and it's so frustrating for them in the early days yeah, when they yeah. just can't get it right. Yeah, they don't yeah, know exactly. and they're just learning. But once they start figuring out how to do it, uh-huh. it's suddenly a fun thing to yeah. do. And that this yeah. thing that they were struggling with that they were frustrated by, they suddenly enjoy doing. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's hard when you're managing people because the stakes are a lot higher <laughs> if you don't know yeah, how to code. It's but like, then but then the rewards are a lot higher. Like you can you can, you know, let's say you're managing somebody for a year and they're really struggling or they wanna like level up as a leader or a manager or whatever. And then okay, sure, it takes a year later, but then they post some blog post or some tweet around like here's all the progress that I made as a leader, you know, how excited I am uh and like the team that I built or the product that I shipped. And you're like Ding, 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 like such a huge reward for like the, the investment that you made into that person and into yourself in that same, in that same journey. Um, you start to see, sure, the stakes are higher, but the reward is also, is also higher. And I would say that the stakes are kind of more forgiving because people, when you, when you develop a, a, like a leadership type of relationship with more people, like, we're all people, right? We're all going to make mistakes. We're all going to like, we're going to have conversations that are, uh, you know, we're going to hurt, like say hurtful things and then realize what impact that that has and apologize and et cetera. And you get to 
deepen your relationships there, which is uh, satisfying in its own right. Like we all, we all crave connection and, you know, meaning, et cetera. I think I found more, even though the lows are lower, the highs are higher too. When, when you switch to a more like people driven, uh, kind of impact mode, uh, especially as the company scales. Let's talk about the effect that Webflow is having on people outside the company. Yep. Because your mission is to get more people creating mm-hmm. things and then yep. just empower more people to do yep. um, what developers are already doing today. Right. I think I've read quite a lot about you know, the best way to grow a company, mm-hmm. the things that are the most impactful. So you have people like Peter Thiel, who mm-hmm. wrote Zero to One. He was like, mm-hmm. what you need is a monopoly. You need to figure yeah. out some niche that you can target that nobody else is targeting, and that's mm-hmm. the only way to build something big and impactful. Um, there, totally disagree. <laughs> okay. There's a line of thinking uh, 10 or so years ago that like, what you need is just the best product. What you need is uh, to build a product that's at least 10 times better than your competitors. Mm-hmm. And that's the way to stand out. Yep. Um, what do you think contributes There's to so many. Growth? So the pie is so big. Um, this is why I'm so excited about like the potential of Webflow is that so many problems that can be solved with software, especially, could, could be, you know, super hyper targeted at a small population of people that only you care about. Let's say you wanted to create, you know, um, you're in a community immigrated into Sacramento that has a large community of Russian uh, refugees. There's like 200,000 people there, right? Let's say I wanted to create some sort of like mini social network for uh, like a meetup like kind of thing that's very specific to Russian culture and the way that we do events. That's not a scalable multi-billion dollar company or whatever, but it's so meaningful to me to be able to like build community there uh, empowered by software that why not? And and there's this huge uh, white space right now between, you know, people that might have ideas that are like that, that are might, might not be billion dollar companies. And what essentially is the benchmark for uh, venture capital type of investment yeah. companies where they're like, oh, how is this going to become a billion dollar company, right? In order to, uh, to go the venture route, you're usually building things that have to like, uh, have a lot more customers, have, uh, they need a lot more developers, need a lot more designers, product managers, et cetera. The stakes are much higher, right? Uh, but that white space of, um, being able to solve, like build smaller products and services that serve like more, like a more niche type of customer or solve problems that are like, you know, exist, but might not be like massive uh, opportunities that are going to be like global or across, you know, like million plus user bases, et cetera. Mm-hmm. There's a huge, huge opportunity there. It's, it's almost like, the way I think about it is um, when magazines used to, when you used to have like, you would do them on paper and then you kind of went to a typesetter to translate that to postscript or whatever. And then you had like this big printer thing and uh, only certain like cities were able to afford kind of a, a newspaper or whatever. Then digital publishing made that like barrier to entry a lot lower and a lot more people were willing to do that in a much more niche kind of situations because the the investment required was much lower. Same thing with like YouTube, right? Yep. You, you need to have a movie studio before to make any sort of entertainment. Now you just need a camera. And I mean, you can say the same thing about podcasting, right? It's like significantly democratized access to that medium. And that's what the, the huge potential behind Webflow is, is is that and other no code tools is that it it gives people a clear uh, pathway to having access to the power of the internet with fewer roadblocks and the big theory is that a lot of these ideas already exist and once they understand that they have access to like they have the right building blocks to be able to build for that um, magical things will happen they're already starting to happen in the same way that if you know developers are listening that rails did the same thing but in a kind of a smaller way for programming in general 
general. Like when Rails came out, a lot of developers, like early stage developers, junior developers, even designers, were able to use that as like an abstraction layer of things mm-hmm. that they no longer needed to understand. They didn't have to understand SQL. They didn't have to understand like how to like build out these UIs. They would just sort of scaffold out an object and it would sort of create UIs and maybe tweak some CSS or whatever. And we got like Airbnb and GitHub right. and all these other companies based on that. It was like a step function in empowering people to do more, even though it still required code. That is, uh, that's sort of like our big theory. And it's already being proven that by making the barrier to entry a lot lower, even though you can't build like the most complicated things with no code tools, uh, it just opens up the, the playing field for many more makers and creators that have like this idea that they want to monetize. They now have, they don't have to rely on like, okay, how does this, how, how does this become so profitable or so revenue generating that I can hire two developers and a designer to do that, right? They can, that one person can actually develop that business idea or that product or service directly if they put in the time to, to like learn these tools and like learn how to um, hook them up together. And of course, the t- tools are pretty immature right now, so you mm-hmm. have to like put in quite a, l- a lot of effort, but they're getting better and better and drastically so. So and that I think that will open up such a huge opportunity for people like once they have the, uh, an idea to be able to prove whether it's like a um, a viable business much sooner with much higher margins because you don't need to put in uh, as much in terms of like labor and time and uh, you know like outsourcing uh, to be able to even bring that to market to even test whether it works or not for the same way that Shopify made it so much easier for people to test out a product yeah. like you no longer have to hire a development team to say like okay build out this whole e-commerce experience all you really need to innovate on right now is the product and uh, to a certain degree not even like fulfillment anymore right because they're starting to automate that more and more so you have to focus more on the like the market opportunity and finding something that you think people need and marketing it etc so it's it's all about bringing down the barrier to entry and all about making it uh, like that journey from idea to launching a lot shorter and i think by removing code from that equation it just means that a hundred times many people can even give it a shot yeah it's exciting for developers too i mean i just Put together a Shopify store for Andy mm-hmm. hackers earlier yep. this week. It took yeah. like two hours, yeah. and it's beautifully scanned. It looks just like the Andy hackers yeah. website, and that frees me up to write more code in other places. That's, yeah, and and that's the uh, deceiving thing about even the title, like uh, or the name of this movement. Unfortunately, I didn't have an input into naming it no code, <laughs> but but even just hearing it, you know, the branding, you can think of it like, okay, we're trying to get rid of coders or there's no code. But the truth is, this is all an abstraction layer over code that is only going to increase the need for coders. Yeah. Um, because as you start to build more things with software, inevitably, um, you're going to have use cases and things like ways to scale and expand like your initial thing that you create with more custom things. So it's sort of like a rising tide lifts all boats mm-hmm. type of philosophy. The same way that 50 years ago, people were fearful when spreadsheets started becoming a reality because you, the way that you did financial modeling and like uh, doing a, you know, just a graph of like a chart of fi- financial performance, you'd have to use like COBOL, Pascal, and Fortran, and programmers were doing this stuff, generating like reports, et cetera. And then spreadsheets came out, and they were, for, first they were kind of a toy. And now over a billion people use spreadsheets to get access to computing power, right? And developers are uh, doing more complex development work, right? Yeah. And, and no-code tools are kind of the same, where you're going to have a lot more things started and a lot more need for developers, for which, by the way, we already have a massive shortage in the world. There's like a million developer shortage today, and that's expanding. That, that skill is not going anywhere, and it's only going to be um, you know, more and more valued over time. That's such a great way to make that point. You know, Excel's here. We don't have fewer developers. In fact, we have more developers yeah, exactly. than we've ever had. Yeah, and with yeah. the advent of, of no-code tools, I'm sure the same thing will happen. Yep. 
Um, sort of the the underlying current that we're talking about here is that Webflow is kind of at the middle of this no-code movement. You mm-hmm. allow people to build um, apps and websites without code, and you recently hosted the no-code conference mm-hmm. in San Francisco, which yep. I unfortunately missed. I don't know how I missed it. Oh, bummer. Uh, but next year I'll be there. What are some of the things you saw happening there that got you excited that others you know, who didn't attend mm-hmm. maybe missed out on? Ooh, the biggest, the most exciting thing for me was just hearing how people felt, honestly, like, because uh, no code has been, or these approaches of like automating uh, or automation through computing power, whether it's Excel, whether it's Zapier, whether it's, uh, you know, even 10 years ago, um, like if this, then that, or whatever, mm-hmm. all of these things sort of had, like people felt some of the the productivity gains from that. Um, but at NoCodeConf, it was the first time I heard a lot of conversations of like, oh, I've been doing a lot of these. It's like, I knew I wanted to create. I knew I wanted to build for for the internet and for software. And and finally, I can see that there are other people that are just like me. Like, I, I can't quite get myself to like understand how all this code stuff works, but I want to create. I want to like build these things. And now I see 300 other people that are in my same position. You have people from like marketing teams who are like frustrated uh, with having to wait like a month for engineering to turn around like their marketing experiment or whatever. And then being able to discover, holy crap, I can do this entire thing myself, hit publish and it goes live, right? And it's the real thing. Uh, you have people who are like building entire products like IDOU, they have a whole design thinking course where a designer completely created the entire front end experience of that without uh, re- like waiting to, for a front end developer who knows like React or Vue or whatever. And that made the entire product happen. Um, so you, you start to see like the community that's forming, like the spark that formed of like, okay, this is an identity now. This is like a thing. Like I can see other people are, you know, calling themselves visual developers. I can see other people are you know saying like i'm part of the no code community or whatever uh which i think is super powerful like the the fact that for me that was like a 10x um uh, more powerful thing than here's some skill that i learned or some right. trick with some tool x or whatever i we belong even, to this community exactly we didn't even make the the event about webflow um you know i talked i'm from webflow and we said like sponsored by webflow or whatever or presented by webflow but we had people from a bunch of other companies, even companies that we consider to be competitive, is more around like, how do we kickstart this industry? How do we work together to empower a lot more people? Because the opportunity here is so massive. Like, even if you have a thousand competitors, it's it's like greenfield. It's almost like you know the gold rush where there's uh, fifty mountains with a ton of gold, and you're really like cutting yourself short from uh, you know cl- laying claim to all the mountains or whatever because um, it's just going to be harder for you, right? Like, and we have right now like the kinds of relationships we formed from from that conference more companies that we're working with and partnering with and like creating integrations with or whatever that to me that's the most exciting thing just the, just the the spark of like this movement that that really got legitimized there this is one of the cool things i think going back to what we were talking about earlier bringing a creative solution to a boring sort of commonplace <laughs> problem yeah. and i don't want to call you know yeah, webflow yeah, boring or what you're doing boring at all but i think it's it's not you know it's something that's been around but it gives you that longevity where there's millions of people who actually care about yeah. creating these experiences. And if you stick around long enough, different things happen. The industry yeah. changes and you yeah. can be there to sort of ride those waves and capture them. So, um, for example, John O'Nolan with Ghost, who's helping with journalism and mm-hmm. publishing, the amount of crises and journalism that have happened yeah. since he started Ghost. And he's been there 
for every single one of them to say, hey, move to Ghost. This is an independent mm-hmm. publishing platform, mm-hmm. et cetera. Mm-hmm. Or with Webflow, where you started Webflow years ago mm-hmm. and no code wasn't a thing. Nobody yep. had that term. There was no no right. code community. But because you've been pushing this direction yep. and solving this quote unquote boring problem, you're there when these big trends hit. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the challenges that a lot of founders in your position might have uh, is that you're building a tool that has a lot of leverage that allows people to create pretty much anything. Mm-hmm. But you know, sometimes with that lack of specificity comes difficulties in marketing. How do you oh, absolutely. how do you describe what Webflow is? How do you describe what you can do with it when you have so many different people? Who yeah, use it it's for like different how do you market Excel? Right. <laughs> it's like I can manage my chores. Yeah. Uh, or I can uh, like there's entire billion dollar companies that run their entire model on Excel. Yeah. Right. So what do you say as a that's is that's where you have to find specific verticals in uh, or what we what we say is uh, we define personas. You know, we have uh, web design freelancers. They have a bunch of jobs be, to be done. Right. Like they want to make a living. They don't know how to code. They have clients that expect a certain level of like, uh, you know, custom work from them and they need to. They need to move fast, right? They need to uh, deliver a project, then move on to the next client to make a living, et cetera. So we developed that as a persona. We have different messaging for them. It's more around how do you manage your clients? How do you lower your costs for uh, like developing these things? How do you uh, make sure that your um, customer moves to hosting and you can add like a markup there? We call it like managed billing, where they can say, you know, I'm going to charge you $200, even though Webflow costs 20 bucks. Um, so that, that solves their needs. Then you might have like a marketing team where, you know, what they really care about is speed. They mm-hmm. don't have clients. They have like the company where they work, right? Like HelloSign uses Webflow for right. marketing. Like all a bunch of other YC startups use, uh, Webflow for marketing. What they care about is speed, iteration, and, you know, not having to like file a ticket with engineering to like make a CSS change, right? Um, so for them, it's a totally different value add, right? Then we have e-commerce, which is, you know, people selling products and digital goods. And in the future, it's going to be like creating entire SaaS products, right? So that's a hard thing. You kind of have to pick like four or five. Uh, and really focus on them. And even that's hard because like each one of those you need an expert in. And it's, it's like a, uh, an exercise in company building because mm-hmm. you can't just ask like one person on your team. You own like research and development and all the marketing and, uh, feature kind of preference work for, uh, you know, large companies and small companies and freelancers or whatever. It's a really o- overwhelming, um, thing to like split focus on. So we have to kind of pick and choose and prioritize which things, uh, which, which of those are the easiest sell and, and kind of hope that like word of mouth and, uh, things like that spread more broadly. And while other people, uh, find other ways to, to apply Webflow to their, um, use case, like, you know, we have many examples where people build entire products with Webflow, but we don't yet have that as a, you know, a selling point on our website. Like, right. hey, build something that you're going to put up on Product Hunt, even though we've had like, you know, over 50 companies that are launching Product Hunt. We're like, you know, in the first position because it, and nobody even knows it was built in Webflow, right? It was something that they just developed and got out there. But that's not, you know, it's not big enough that we can go and say like a bunch of our effort is dedicated to that. Uh, but the cool thing about some of these personas like freelancers and like uh, designers that work at companies on marketing teams is that by virtue of using the product, they get they now have a sense of like what else it can do. Mm-hmm. It's almost like if you, you know, if somebody asks you to edit like a family video on like iMovie or After Effects or whatever, you kind of get more ideas like, oh, now that I kind of understand this tool right. chain, I can do so much more. I can go like develop my portfolio or I can go develop like this idea for a friend that wants to start a business or whatever, or I can develop some like toy, uh, you know, product where I can like track I don't know, we had one that was on the top of Product Hunt that just tracks a bunch of uh, 
spreadsheets of data, like public data that people can like use to slice and dice and like feed into, you know, design tools, et cetera. Like, you know, not monetizable, right. but it's like a it's, cool product for the yeah, world. Yeah, a cool product. Or like recently something launched on Product Hunt around like color palettes where, you know, I'm starting a new product. I, I want to go and get inspired by a bunch of like really nice looking color palettes, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like a super monetizable thing, but this thing got like over 100,000 views and like a lot of people use it now. It's getting some integrations into design tools. That's something that exists that wouldn't have existed if this, uh, you know, if, if a product like Webflow didn't exist. So it's... Um, yeah, I kind of forgot what the original question was. <laughs> I mean, I like where you're going with this because it's exciting that you're able to build something and you can work on your company and what mm-hmm. you're creating and your team, but that that's empowering so many other people to build yeah. things that you never conceived of, yep. wouldn't have time to think of, right. and you can know that like you're at least somewhat indirectly responsible for those things yeah, coming into the world. That's really satisfying. Like we have this, uh, we call it a showcase. If you go to webflow.com forward slash discover and seeing what people have built, and it just blows my mind. Like some some of the we've had like a 3D X-Wing something experience like that just looks like it should be built in Maya or something like that, but it was built with like divs and stuff. We've had people rebuild like the AirPods landing page, right? Completely visually, uh, where, you know, Apple probably had a team of like 10 developers working on this thing. And a lot of other like creative experiences were like, holy cow, when you put these tools into other people's hands, this is nothing like what we imagined before. And they like yeah. stretch it beyond uh, its limitations. Almost like, you know, you can think of it as uh, building a game engine, right? A lot of these uh, companies like build game engines like Unreal, et cetera. But, you know, it's other teams that figure out what kind of games to build. And you have like a wide range of things that end up being developed there or like 3D animation software or even like YouTube. You know, you create the sort of platform and the foundation, but what, what people do with it is so unique, right? And so multifaceted. Like you have entire brands doing things on YouTube and you have like individuals, you know, kids reviewing, uh, you know, unboxing things. And then you have mm-hmm. all sorts of kind of society defining um, like entertainment, et cetera. I mean, MakerPad was built on Webflow. Yep. MakerPad is itself a platform that's inspiring other people to build things. Yes. So it's like many yeah. levels down of yeah, platforms, exactly. inspiring platforms. Yeah. And I think a lot about um, kind of founder company fit. How do you start a company that you as a founder actually will enjoy running? And if you're someone who really wants to have an impact on what others do, and if that's mm-hmm. super important to you, I think building some sort of tool that others can create with or some yeah. sort of platform others can build on is kind of the perfect company choice because you get to see exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. And I think what's most important for me as a founder, and I think it's very important to uh, a lot of other founders, is to be able to build a company that you're proud of, that you you can say, I didn't have to compromise my personal values in order to make decisions you know, around some aspect of the business or whatever. And if you can do that, if you can uh, create something that gives value to others and, and makes their life easier and you feel good about the way that you did it, that's, that's magical. Like, and that's, you know, that's the kind of company I want to, um, keep building so that I feel proud of this and uh, like I can, you know, but not to, not to fast forward to my deathbed or whatever, but to be like really, proud of not like the money that I made, mm-hmm. which I'm sure will manifest over time, but like the the impact that I've been able to have uh, on other people's lives, including my, especially my teams, uh, but especially like our, our customers in the world at large. So that, that keeps me super excited. I, I'm actually more excited now than I even was uh, seven years ago or six years ago or five years ago or whatever, because the, the potential is like multiplying because you get to see more more of these stories uh, out in the world of what people actually create, how they make a living, how they impact other people. Because we've had people create products that impact like 
millions of lives uh, that it's sort of like this hub and spoke thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's in butterfly effect. If like they weren't able to create that, that wouldn't have happened. If we didn't create Webflow, they wouldn't have happened, right? right? And it's sort of uh, like this multi, multi-stage effect that makes you feel proud of uh, what, you can, what you can build as a team. You know, it's, um, I feel pity for historians of the future who are going to have to look back on the 20 teens and try to make <laughs> sense of like all the different things that are changing and all yeah, the different yeah. apps and websites that are completely upending how basically society works. But if you think about it, it's kind of like historians looking back at the uh, time of the printing press right now mm-hmm. and the Renaissance where, you know, very few people had the, the ability to write or even read, right? right? Like we didn't have the ability to put thought on paper and distribute it to the world, right? That was a relatively new invention with the printing press. And how much more creativity, how many more ideas, how many, like, what what kind of change has happened in the world now that we were able to share ideas, write things down, actually share them with other people? Um, it's, I, think, I think what we're going through now with, like, the internet sort of revolution is is a similar type of magnitude as uh, when people kind of got this new medium of being able to yeah. write. So this show is listened to by a great many aspiring founders, people who want to start businesses, people who want to start businesses that are not just cool and helpful, but that also generate revenue and can sustain mm-hmm. themselves and yeah. who ideally want to keep to the values that you yeah. just laid out, where you don't really have to sacrifice your personal morals and values in order to mm-hmm. make your company a success. Um, what have you learned that you think it would be helpful for these other founders to know? Uh, if I was to sum it up, always trust your gut. You know, all these things that we discussed, whether it's venture capital or whatever, all those things are a tool, right? Just the same way that if you're running a business and you need to go take out a loan in order to be able to make an investment that you know is going to pay back or whatever, they're at the end of the day, they're just tools. Uh, but the most important thing that I, I think I feel the most proud of is that when it came to making hard decisions, uh, I leaned more on my, I would say, morality rather than business sense. Uh, and that's the thing I regret the least because I've made some decisions that are like bad for the business or, you know, would cost us a lot more money, but we're better for people uh, and kinder to people and kinder to our customers. So, and th- of course there's like, Trade-offs and fairness when you don't you don't want to give your product away, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, you, you want you want to charge for the value that you offer, etc. But at the end of the day, that's the thing that I um, I feel most proud of, and I think that that's the thing that got us into the situation of being in control of our own destiny, building a product that we all really care about, uh, and um, really investing in the relationships and the in the people and the team that helps build this product, uh, which ultimately is the is the thing that um, needs to sustain the longest. Uh, you know, we. We have a team where, I mean, it's 155 people over the last four years. At most, one person has left per year. Uh, and I think that speaks to like how much we care about uh, providing like avenues for people to grow, to have impact, to uh, you know work on the things that they really want to want to work on, and be uh, you know honest and transparent about their experience there so that we can better improve, et cetera. So I would, above all, focus on people. Uh, don't focus on... You know, a lot of founders have like this, this mindset of like being, and I had it at at certain points of like losing control at all costs, not even to investors, but losing control even to your team, right? Like not having that final sort of dictatorial say of like, this is exactly what we're going to do. And a lot of times you hear it manifested of like, I don't want a boss, right? And believe it or not, even if you don't have VCs, even if you build a profitable business, if you, if you are creating a team and a product that's driven by people, you're going to have, like, if your team is 100 people, you're going to have 99 bosses. If you really are serving your team, 
because now you're accountable to 99 people, you, you know, you being the hundredth, because you're responsible for 99 people's like paychecks and livelihood and families. And that is a, that is not something that is like you're in control at all times. And that, that team is now delivering the vast majority of the value that the company is getting revenue from, right? So you can't even claim that, you know, I started the business or whatever this is all because of like my ideas. That starts to like fade away. You can't claim a moral high ground there. So I would, I would say like, Prioritize team, prioritize people, prioritize relationships, because uh, um, ultimately that leads to, like, it just feels better. And I honestly believe it leads to stronger businesses over time that treat their customers better and customers respect a lot more because they see it from the outside or how people talk about the company, how people talk as customers. Where it gets around. Exactly, exactly. And, and that's like... It takes a long time to build trust and, you know, it's pretty quick, it's pretty easy to destroy it. Uh, but it's also like if you if you really are thoughtful around uh, how you treat people, like you also get a lot more grace from people when you make a mistake. Trust your gut and prioritize relationships. Vlad Magdalene, it's been such a pleasure having you. Thank you. Thanks for coming on the show. Can you let listeners know where they can go to learn more about what you're up to and about Webflow? Yeah, just webflow.com. We have a bunch of stuff there. I don't like, I'm sure there's a, a lot more news on our on our website, but check out the product. Feel free to reach out to me. I'm Vlad at Webflow.com uh, or find me on Twitter or on the Webflow Discover section. Thanks again, Vlad. Thank you. Listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, you should reach out to Vlad on Twitter and let him know. You can find him at CallMeVlad. Also, if you want my thoughts and takeaways from each episode of the podcast, you can find the Indie Hackers Podcast newsletter at www.indiehackers.com slash podcast. Thanks so much for listening, and I will see you next time. Mm-hmm.